The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Rockheads, come down off the wall, take off your Velcro suit, and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 272 with guest Scott Kate, recorded live Tuesday, September 11, 2007. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net. Training developers to work smarter. And now, bringing world-class .NET and SharePoint training on-site to your development team. Online at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who says, the only problem with troubleshooting is, trouble sometimes shoots back, Carl Franklin. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. Carl Franklin here. Richard Campbell. Hi, Richard. Howdy, sir. How are you? And, uh... Here we are again. Yes, sir. Yeah. Um, Richard, I'm just going to get right into the Better Know Framework. Hit me. All right. Richard, today's class is actually a system Windows Forms class. For the next three shows, I'm going to be doing Windows Forms controls. Cool. And this one is the Windows Forms Splitter. It's in the toolbox on the left if you're doing a Windows Forms application. Right. And, um, you know, this is your basic vertical and horizontal splitter. But what's cool about it, or actually what's tricky about it, is that it matters what order you put your uh, controls on your form and dock them and all that stuff. Oh. So typically you'd want to, if you want a horizontal slider, you know, that goes up and down, you're going to have to set the uh, direction to horizontal. Yeah. But let's say you want a vertical slider. Let's say you want a list box on the left. First, you put the list box on the left, and then you dock it to the left side with the dock property. And then you put the splitter on. And it's really important the order that you put it on, or else you're going to have a heck of a time moving things around. So then you put the splitter on, and it really is just a thin strip that docks to the left up against the right-hand side of whatever your control is, the list box or whatever. So you got to put the control on first, then put the splitter on. Right. And then you can put another control on the right-hand side and dock that to fill. And so that fills up the space on all four sides. Okay. Then when you run it, um, you basically have can grab that splitter and move and resize both of those uh, items left and right. 
That's how it goes. Now, what you can do is you can do a three-way split. So let's say you want a list box on the left, and then on the right you want a you know a I don't know some control like a grid or something on the top, and a text box on the bottom. You can first. So here's the order that you do. You put your list box on the left. You dock that to the left. Put the sl- splitter on splitter one. Right. Then you put your grid control in the in the leftover client space, and you dock that to the top, which also docks to the sides. You know how it works, right? right? It'll also dock onto the left as well. On the left and the right. And when you dock that to the top, then you put in another splitter and change the direction to horizontal. And then you put in your bottom uh, control and dock that to fill. Okay, so that you gotta you gotta put in a splitter for each control uh, head of each control you want to split. Right, and the direction tells you whether it's vertical or horizontal. So now you have a three way split UI, just for doing a little click and drag. And pretty cool, huh? Yeah. System Windows Forms splitter. It's interesting that it's dependent on the order because you don't usually see that in controls. Uh, that's just my empirical data, you know. Okay. Um, and it also could be that it's been completely made better in version 2.0 of .NET. I just got in the habit in version 1.1 of, of doing In fact, 1.0 of doing it that way. Right. So uh, I could be all wet. Maybe somebody, alert listener, will uh, tell me I'm all wet. That'd be fine. So what do you got for an email, Richard? Well, you know, I think I may have waited too long to do a link show because we just got a storm of email around link. Yeah. I'm talking about Eric Meyer's show, 270. Mm-hmm. So let me read one of them here. Okay. Uh, Richard, you made an excellent point in the show when you talked about joining heterogeneous data sources with Link. Ah. Prior to Beta 2, all heterogeneous joins were done on the client. Beta 2 added new contains extensions on I enumerable of T and I queryable of T, which allow you to pass a list of items to the server, which will be translated into an in clause. Hmm. Now, that's basically exactly what I talked about with Eric, how I would make a temporary list that I could prov- stuff into an in-clause on the SQL Server side in the old days. Right. And Link does this automatically. Uh, the fellow goes on to point out a post on his blog, and I'll provide the link for the uh, on the uh, .NET Rock site for this. He says, I have a post at my blog which does exactly what you're referring to, joins a table with the selected values from a checked list box. I found it to be fast and easy to create and highly discoverable and maintainable down the road. If you don't use the contains method, all of the records would have been returned from the database and the join performed on the client. It's a great example of how the syntax you use with link can drastically alter the performance you would see. Just because the tools get better doesn't mean we should architect any sloppier. And that email's from Jim Woolley, who's an MVP and has done a book called Link in Action. Awesome. Yeah. Great, Jim. Thanks. Hey, you know, we really didn't talk too much in detail on Tuesday about uh, what we did last weekend in New York City with uh, Greg Brill and Infusion. You know, we were so busy doing it, I, we hardly even talked about it. And and I guess it, I, the guys asked me about why we didn't announce it more on the show, but it sold out almost instantly. I think we announced it once or twice. Right. And then it was full. 
Well, we yeah, we basically uh, in every show once we had, uh, I think it was about a month out, we started putting in ad spots for it. Right. But basically, what happened is about fifty or sixty people registered for this event, where if they were picked based on their questions, their answers to the questions in the questionnaire, they got a all expense paid trip to New York City for free SharePoint training, uh, Silverlight training. And uh, and doing labs like all night long on Saturday. So it really was called Sleepless in New York, and they meant it. I mean, it was an overnight code fest. And there was a few guys who went right through the night. Yeah. So including yours truly, actually. Yes, you did. I uh, went to bed. I'm not crazy. <laughs> so that was last weekend. Yeah. We flew in, spent the weekend in New York, had to hang with these guys. How many were in? I think 12 There was total. 12 picked. Yeah. Right. And uh, somebody won a Lenovo laptop, somebody won an Xbox, somebody won a Zune, somebody got a, a trip to uh, Redmond, and they had a video crew come in. So you're going to actually be able to see a video of the event as soon as it gets uh, you know, published and everything. Um, it's going to take a while to edit, I'm sure. Yeah, there was a lot of footage they shot. And, and you're going to be saying to yourself, dang, I, I wish I went. You know, I wish I could have gone because it was some serious fun. Anyway, the offer from Infusion still stands. If you want to spend a year in Manhattan working for Infusion, uh, they'll pay for your apartment for uh, for, a, for a whole year in Manhattan. So if you're interested in that, you can go to shrinks.com slash KH6, and uh, the details are listed there. Uh, we've been talking a lot about where we're going to be this fall. Uh, the only other thing I just, uh, you know, we're not going to go through the list again on this show, but I do want to mention we do have a, a contest to win two 24-inch monitors. Well, you'll only get to win one 24-inch LCD yeah, monitor. you have to world. live with one. But we will have two winners. And uh, also, uh, every week we're going to give away a Tom Bin bag. So... So if you go to uh, .netrocks.com slash Barcelona and answer a few questions one time, register, and then every week you can answer a question from the previous week's shows. And if you get that right, you go into a pool and we pick randomly from the from the correct answers. Every week we're going to give away a Tom Bin bag. The winners of those weekly contests uh, go into a pool and we pick on October 30th two winners for the uh for the 24-inch monitors. So good luck with that. .netrocks.com slash Barcelona. Richard, our guest today is Scott Kate. He's the president of MyKB.com, Incorporated in Scottsdale, Arizona. MyKB.com is a technology company specializing in commercial ASP.NET applications. His product line includes MyKB.com, knowledge-based software, KBAlerts.com, Microsoft knowledge-based notifications, and EasySearchASP.net, a pluggable search engine for ASP.NET sites. Scott also runs azgroups.com, Arizona.net user groups, one of the largest and most active user group communities in the country, and is a member of aspinsiders.com, a group devoted to giving early feedback to the Microsoft ASP.NET team. Scott has also been awarded the ASP.NET MVP for five years in a row, from 2004 to 2008, in addition, Scott has co-authored an Ajax book entitled Beginning Ajax with ASP.NET and the novel Surveillance, which you can check out at surveillance-the-novel.com. Scott, you wrote a novel? Um, 
Well, I, that, that probably should be fixed a little bit. A buddy of mine, um, Marco Celia and I kind of put together a novel. He did all the writing and I helped, uh, develop the storyline. So it was originally my idea and we were just kind of sitting and sitting around maybe at a coffee shop and said, Hey, let's, let's put this book together. So, um, it took maybe four months in the late nineties and it's, uh, kind of a big brother surveillance, who's watching who kind of book. And, um, it's kind of a fun thing that, that we did over, uh, over some time. So, uh, how do you distribute it? It was, um, it's self-published, which basically means we put together a couple thousand dollars and had, uh, 200 copies printed up. And then we just distributed it off of the website. There's a PayPal link. It's for, I think it's 1995. And I just have a box of books that I send out. There's no ISBN or, uh, anything. Huh. You know, it's not like it's being sold on Amazon or we didn't have a publisher or anything. We literally just put it together in Word and wow. um, and and sent it to a website and had 200 copies printed. There's a couple of people that specialize in that. Um, I'm not sure who we used. It was so long ago. But, wow. Um, yeah, it was a cool idea. One of those things kind of just say you did it. But, you know, it's not you're <laughs> not getting rich off it or becoming some famous author. You're not Stephen King. Right. Yeah, yeah exactly. Marco's a really talented guy, um, and he's he's uh, going further in the arts. But you know, I'm just a techie guy. So, so is this something that you might want to think about publishing with a real publisher someday? Do you ever think about shopping it? Um, I think there's there's probably a storyline there for a movie, um, but n- nothing that I would do seriously. If the book were to ever go anywhere, it would be on Marco's doing. So, okay. Well, good enough. So, uh, would you say that your first big hit in the software world was KB Alerts? I mean, this is where I first met you over that software. Um, KB Alerts really put my name on the map. It's not something that I created. Um, I actually took it over from Dave Wanta, who is the famous guy for uh, all things email in uh, NASP.net. He does ASP.net email, and um, he he originally put the site together. And, uh, it, it became somewhat of a burden, uh, to him, for him to maintain. And because I was in the knowledge base industry with my KB, I was talking to Dave and, um, it just made sense for, uh, for, for me to take it over. So, um, KB Alerts is kind of cool. It just basically monitors the Microsoft knowledge base and then the products that you're interested in, Visual Studio or C Sharp or Word or even the games, um, they all have knowledge base articles. Even the operating systems, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's 350 products that um, KB Alerts monitors. So um, knowledge base is really cool. It's a way for you to basically store factual information. The bad part about it is it's very reactive. So right. you, you experience a problem, and then you have to go look for something. Um, and so what we do with our knowledge base software and with KB Alerts is uh, we make the knowledge base proactive to say, hey, if you're interested in something like SQL Server or, you know, you're doing this on a day-to-day basis, when something new is found, we'll just tell you about it. And there's a lot of traffic. You'd be amazed at how many articles get into the knowledge base. And a lot of it becomes noise because it doesn't apply to you. Right. So you can filter it out with keywords and that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, exactly. So it's not something that you need to necessarily read on a day-to-day basis, but the KB Alerts newsletter comes out. And it just has, in the email, it just has the title and the synopsis of the article. And you're like, no, no, no. Oh, yeah, that one's kind of interesting. It maybe applies to me, and, you know, you file it away. So it's proactive. You know that something's there, or you know that there's a solution lurking, um, so that when you run into that in your job, you can 
you know, go back to that article and reference it. So KB Alerts is pretty cool. It's very popular. Okay. Um, so to answer your question, I think that kind of put me on the map, but my, um, first software was, was my KB in the .NET world. So what is my KB? So if you imagine, let's go back to KB Alerts for a second. Um, we don't have anything to do with the actual data in KB Alerts. That all comes from Microsoft and we just monitor it for updates. But if you imagine the whole infrastructure behind KB Alerts or behind the knowledge base at Microsoft, somebody has to write the, the article, somebody has to approve it, somebody has to edit it, and then finally it gets pushed out to public. Um, at least that's what, what the public sees. And so there's a whole workflow that happens there. But there's also vendor KB articles that the public can't see. So there's a security mechanism that only certain people can see certain things. Like the MVPs have knowledge base articles that they're allowed to see. Hmm. Uh, I'm sure there's internal KB articles that only staff is allowed to see. Hmm. And uh, the MyKB product does that for a small company. Um, it gives you all of the management to keep track of your factual data. So so this is uh, something that you would run internally only, really? Um, well, MyKB is a hosted application. I so see. You can run it internally in that you can set security scope so that only logged in users can see certain things. But it's all about you and your company, I guess is what I'm saying. It's, it's all about you and your company, right. Yeah. So you're, you're, you're basically managing support um, or, or help desk traffic to eliminate having to answer the same question over and over and over again. Yeah, and you want to expose that part to your customers so that they can answer the questions themselves. That's right. right. So you have 24-hour support on your website with the knowledge base. And we do you know, RSS, and there's a web service that we'd integrate with other uh, platforms and such. So. Now, both of these are paid services? Uh, KB Alerts is a free service. Uh, it's something that we run as a community project, and there's some advertising on the site, but there's no charge to the uh, consumer who's actually receiving the notifications. Mm-hmm. Um, and MyKB is a commercial product that's a paid-for service. I see. Um, and that ranges from 29 to $249 a month. Okay. That's pretty good. So that's been, that's, is that, is that your, uh, career? Are you, are you working for yourself doing mykb.com? Mykb.com pays all of the bills, which helps us fund, um, you know, no, normal bills and then also, uh, some experimental, uh, and new products. Um, so, and, um, oh, that's great. Yeah. We have some new products. So, what, some new products, you said? Um, we have a new product that we're announcing um, that is going to be run on the domain shoop.com. Um, it's kind of a web 2.0 name. Yeah. Uh, S-H-O-O-P-E. <laughs> and um, the product is Shoop Data Services. Um, we kind of found, um, I don't know, you guys know Rob Howard with Telligent? Sure. He's a good friend of mine, and we were talking one day, and... It, we we decide he runs the the forums and um you know uh community server and a bunch of other products and ultimately everything web based including mykb and and his forum software it all comes down to content management um hmm. right you you're wanting to keep track of things online and typically there are products that will help you keep track of specific things like rob does a great job of keeping track of forums and blogging and and some other stuff. But if you just have a little piece of data that you want to keep track of either in an application or um, or a to-do list uh, or an expense report, there's not really a place that you can just go and say, hey, here's a, 
a, a piece of data that I want to start tracking. And so what Shoop Data Services does is it gives you a, uh, a database that you can kind of build for the layperson and start keeping track of lists, uh, lists of data. So if you think of kind of SQL Server in the sky, um, Shoop.com huh. is going to provide, provide that service. Like SQL so, in the ether. Yeah. <laughs> but we're, we're really trying to gear it towards uh, the layperson. So my mom can come up to the site and start keeping track of a list and then share that uh, list of data with her friends or to-do list or recipes. Um, and then, you know, there's some viral aspects that we have with uh, integration with some of the social networks, et cetera. And there are actually some services that, that do that now. Uh, if you were to just stop at the go to a website and enter some data scenario. But what we've done is we've added a live web service feed in and out of your application. Yeah, I was going to say that seems like a perfect application for web services. Right. So let's say that you guys are keeping track of your subscriber base. And instead of having to spin up a SQL server and do all of the work, you would just go to the shoop.com website, say, these are my subscribers. They have a name. They have an email address. This is the last time they subscribed. And you would say, generate my web service. And then you get a strongly typed web service that lets you program against that data in the sky. Strongly typed meaning the URL is unique? No, strongly typed meaning that you actually get a custom web service that might be called uh, .NET Rocks.ASMX. And when you hit that URL, you'll get the WSDL back in Visual Studio or whatever your development tool is that says, hey, you have a customer customer.name equals, and then you'll have a customer.save method. And so... I, I, they, I know how web services work. I'm just trying to figure out what strongly typed versus, you know, non-strongly typed means. Well, so the the website is all based on one single generic web service, which is Shoop ASMX. Okay. And that lets us do generic things like save entity, add column to entity. Um, and so... I might have con- kind of confused the conversation. There's really two different markets that we're going after. One, one is just the website user um, that may be accessing our product through Facebook or through Shoop.com um, or or some of the other social networks. And then the other market is a programmer who says, "Hey, I have this little application that I need to track data on, but instead of pushing everything up to my own SQL Server." or my own access database on the website, I'll just go to this database in the sky and keep track of everything there. Yeah, that's great. I guess the question is, is it how you query it? Is it just via the, the a method call? Well, so it really depends on the, the user. I'm assuming you're talking about from the web service. Right. Is that right? So in the web service, you can query from two things. We call it a search. And the search takes an entity and an array of predicates. And so let's say that you guys do have your subscriber database online and you want to find my file and you're writing the code to do that. You would say .NET rocks.customers.search and then you would pass in a predicate of customer.name like scott.kate at mykb.com. And then you would get back that full customer record as a, as a customer object type. If you were doing the generic web services, then you would just get back a, a generic data table that would have columns in it. Ooh, reinventing SQL. Brave, brave, my friend. So here's the thing. We're not reinventing SQL. 
we're just making SQL-like services available to people who don't know SQL, or maybe even do know SQL but don't don't need to set everything up on their own. Yeah, Scott, the reason I had that reaction was just that I can imagine, uh, you know, you take it so far, and it's for the layperson, but... You know, what happens if their, their simple looking data just naturally all of a sudden needs joins and things? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and we, and we manage relationships. We have one to many relationships, many to many relationships. There are lookup tables. Really? Um, and so we're actually, uh, mimicking the use of SQL Server. In fact, we're storing everything in SQL Server in the back end. So you're exposing all the functionality of SQL Server through your. We're not ex- we're not exposing all of the functionality of SQL Server, but we are ex- we are exposing a majority of it. There are some aggregated functions that we have problems with getting the predicate signatures right, and so we're releasing a beta of the software that we're just going to open up to 5,000 people because um, we've done a lot of testing on it internal and with some local folks, but we kind of want to get um, some other people giving us feedback. Hmm. Um, and so there's an amazing... Uh, security mechanism that we've built around entities and um, kind of the last concept of Shoop.com is the idea of data sharing. Um, something that you've never been able to do before is share your data. Um, and I'll elaborate on that a little bit. So let's go back to the example where you are keeping track of your uh, subscribers. Maybe something that's not, shouldn't be that private. Um, subscribers you're obviously probably not going to share with very many people. But let's say you write a second application that needs to tie into those subscribers. You can actually create a relationship from application two back to an entity in application one. So, hmm. um, so now you want to keep track of another application for all the people that you've done interviews with. But instead of having to keep track of Scott Kate in two places, you just set a relationship from interviews back to the address book that you already created. Sort of like cross-database querying, then. Exactly. Huh. Richard, what do you think of that? I think it has a huge possibility. There's really a recognition that what do you need aggregate functions for in this kind of data? You you generally aren't going to want to combine. You want to create sets of data, but you don't want to compress that data down to a single value. I mean, I, and I was just going through my head of what would I do? The most I could think of was I want to count how many customers I have. Or how many orders that customer's made. So that's kind of the thing that we started out thinking with as well. You know, this is going to be really easy. But as soon as you jump into a real-life scenario, there are all kinds of things that jump out at you that you didn't realize. For example, um, one of the things that we're doing to help people understand this is we're writing a bunch of sample applications. And one of them is a survey. And so we say, you know, here's five questions. Each of these five questions have multiple types of answers. But if you have a thousand people answer that survey, you need aggregation. And then it's not just totals of how many people answered question two one way or another, but it's um, aggregation like what percentage of this is compared to that. And, you know, surveys get its into some pretty fancy numbers as soon as you get more than a hundred people that answer it. Um, so, and, and those applications that we write will, uh, will be up and available on shoop.com as well. Yeah, invariably you're going to get into the situation where people are going to end up having to pull their data down from Shoop to do other work on it in their own data store, and that kind of undermines the point. Well, hopefully we can add those aggregated functions through uh, through time. We just 
you know, releasing software, as you guys know, you can never wait for everything. So right. um, that's yeah. one of the things where we've decided to say, okay, what we have for the basic functionality is done. It's baked. It's unit tested against. It's got a great set of design patterns. And um, that part's ready to ship. So let's get that out the door. And um, we know that there's going to be, you know, half a dozen or to a dozen things where we just kind of slap ourselves in the forehead and say, oh, my gosh, I can't believe we didn't think of that. Thank you, 5,000 beta members, for using it and letting us know that would have been a huge mistake if we opened up to the world and forgot to, you know, fill in the blank. Hmm. So when does this, uh, when does Shoop hit the streets, as it were? So Shoop.com is going to be available um, to, we're going to put 5,000 invites under the code DNR. And so right on the homepage of Shoop.com, there will be an email address and an invite code. And oh, with uh, DNR, we'll give out um, 5,000 invites to people that are listening to your show, and that will be available at uh, the time the show airs. Wow, that's great. That'd be Thursday. We're recording this a so, uh, couple days beforehand. So we're officially announcing Shoop.com data services on .NET Rock. Awesome. Nice. You've done a bunch of talks around design patterns for ASP.NET. Right. And uh, and I just wanted to dig into that a little bit because I think it's an interesting idea. You know, we talk about design patterns in a very general way. Uh, most folks might even talk about them in the context of .NET. But to speak specifically about ASP.NET, I guess you've got to sort of limit the range uh, or the array of patterns somewhat. Like, I don't think abstract factory classes make sense from ASP.NET. Right. Well, actually, it does because the cool part about ASP.NET is it's only ASP at the very top level. Right. right? As, as soon as you get past the web page, which to some people is the code behind, then you're no longer in ASP.NET. Maybe you're still working with a, a page um, uh, lifecycle mechanism, but, I mean, at that point, you're into .NET, and you've kind of left the ASP behind. So if you're calling into a business layer or a data access layer, right, none of that stuff cares that you're in ASP.NET. So design yeah. patterns are... Are, are still important to the ASP.NET programmer, but a lot of ASP.NET programmers, particularly the one- and two-year developer, when I say that, I mean somebody who's developing ASP.NET with a history of only one or two years, typically stops at the code behind of a web form. And um, design patterns used properly lets you do some things that you might have thought were previously impossible. Um, so in the talks that I, I've done across the country, I'm uh, an Ineta speaker. Um, Ineta is a, a little group that manages the uh, a speaker bureau to send people around and talk to other .NET groups. So um, with that, I've been able to go around and talk about ASP.NET design patterns. And so one of the things that I do is I write a single code base that runs both a Windows application and a web application. And to the to to the developer that's not familiar with the design patterns, they might, you know, poo-poo that idea to say it's impossible or that's really stupid. I would never want to do that. Um, and and the number one thing that people say is, well, I don't write Windows applications, so I don't need to use that design pattern. Right. Um, and the the reality is, I just kind of use that for eye candy. Um, the idea is multiple interfaces, which might be multiple forms on the same website, um, multiple interfaces being run by the same code. 
um, interfaces being the user experience, what the user actually sees. Um, so the, the sample that I go through is a simple website that has uh, question and answer software. I tend to always uh, go back to that knowledge base, simple, simple knowledge mm. base of FAQ stuff. But um, So the sample that I go through is first create a website that displays a question from a database. So we go create a database, we put three questions in there, then we create a web form that says, what question do you want? And you put in the primary key of one, two, three, click submit, and the article is displayed. So what that does is that actually goes to the database, does a round trip, gets the data, and posts it on the page. Every developer in ASP.NET can do that. Chances are 99.999% of the time, that's what an ASP.NET developer is doing, right? Something with data to and from the page. Um, so then the second example is now we need to make an edit form so that somebody can edit that data. And the typical ASP.NET developer will try to um, hammer that same set of code that was already written into the second page. Right. Um, and they'll either try to refactor out to some business methods or... Uh, or to something else. And the problem with that is you're using one set of code to, to, to do two different things. Yeah. Um, so first we created a read object and now we, we need an edit object. Well, in order to edit, you first have to read, right? You right. can just go to an edit form and say, Hey, edit nothing, right? You don't want to have to retype everything. So first you have to fetch it, which we already wrote with the read. And so with the, the model view presenter design pattern, uh, we basically create a a quick little pattern, very simple to use, that will work in both of those instances, just implementing an appropriate .NET interface. So this is challenging without a code window in front of us, but I'm just trying to get a picture of when you put it together. Right. So it, it's it's funny, and I actually make a joke out of this when I do the talk, because the pattern is is very elementary. It's very simple. In fact, to do the pattern when I'm typing code literally takes less than a minute. But it's funny because when I do the talk, it takes me 90 minutes to do that one-minute pattern because <laughs> I really go in to explain a lot more um, theory than what's actually on the screen. So the, the model view presenter design pattern really boils down to something very simple, and that is implementing a .NET interface. And most... Um, most design patterns rely on the use of .NET interfaces, which is nothing more than a contract. So to boil the whole MVP design pattern down to something very basic, your web page implements an interface, which is then fed into the constructor of a presenter, and the presenter actually does the work based on that interface contract. So then when you create your edit page and your read page, both of them implement the same interface, and then both of them instantiate the same, go get my data presenter, and the presenter actually does one piece of work that feeds back data to two different screens. And that could be done through a Windows form, it could be done through a Silverlight form, it can be done through uh, ASP.NET form, or you know anything that's using .NET that implements that interface can, can essentially become a consumer of that presenter who's actually doing the work. So the beauty is you write one piece of code, in a presenter that talks back and forth to a database. And then any time you want to display that on something the user is going to see, you just make whatever that item is, in this case an ASP.NET web form, implement that interface, and now it can have that data. 
And if you want a Windows app, then you use a Windows form to implement the interface. Absolutely. And if you want to go to Silverlight, then you implement against Silverlight. Right. So that's the beauty of .NET is, you know, once you're in this .NET world, anything can implement an interface. And it doesn't necessarily even have to be something that the user sees. So unit tests are going to heavily rely on the use of interfaces. So you're in a unit test and you say, hey, I want to make sure that I can get data to and from the database. I want to get question one and make sure I get something back. So I'm going to spin up a a new object, maybe a mock object, give it an ID of one for the question, and then I'll pass that mock object that implements our interface into the presenter, and the presenter will say, hey, I need to go get question number one. Goes to the database, does its work, and then returns that back to your unit test, and then you can do assertions to make sure you're getting back the right data. So it's a beautiful way to unit test what's going to be happening in your user interface layer without actually being in your user interface layer. Scott, would you use a model view presenter uh, when you want to keep your options open for user interface, whether you want to have a Windows user interface or a web user interface? Is that the main idea, just to have that layer of abstraction between the UI? No. Um, as I said earlier, I just kind of use that sample for eye candy because when somebody sees something running in Windows and ASP.NET, they really, in their mind, get a visual image that, hey, there's a single piece of code that's that's written that's powering both of these models. But I only use that for eye candy. The, The real goal to abstract the user interface away from the actual code that's that's um, working to get that data to the interface is one, so that you can reuse it, but two, that you can unit test against it very easily. I see. And I guess unit test is a type of reuse, right? We want to use that same exact code that's powering our end user website yeah. in, in the unit test. And we want to get those to be as closely related as possible. And the use of an interface or a .NET interface as a contract is a perfect way to do that. Because I've found that, um, yeah, and this is a just a little tangent, you know, that, that some of these products and packages and, and pattern groups that um try to oh you know, try to do that. Try to try to put in this uh put in this layer between the UI and the rest of the layers that uh, abstracts it all away for the purposes of oh you just plug in a different UI. You know, I I find that it's always a lot more of a challenge than people think, you know, to to make a clean break like that. One of the comments that I get in my, uh, when, when I do the talk is, man, that's a lot more code. I mean, I, I've right. got to, I've got to write an interface, then I have to write a presenter, then I have to implement the interface, then I got to do all this work. So my answer to that is, that's, that's a false statement. Using the model view presenter design pattern requires a little bit more code, and that little bit more code is extracting an interface, but that's it. Every other piece of code, every other line of code that you were going to write, you were going to write anyway. So the pattern just takes the same code that you already wrote, and it puts it into a different place. It moves it from what used to be in the code behind of a web form out to a presenter, And then the only thing that you have to write that's extra is the contract that talks between those two, and that's the .NET interface. And so that has the rule that says, hey, I need to be able to get an integer that's the primary key of the question that you want to display on your form, and then the rest of the rules I need to be able to set the question, set the answer, and those are both strings, 
etc. I think the approach of uh, we need to abstract it away for the purposes of unit testing is a much more valid reason than we're going to try to make our application uh, have a Windows interface and a web interface and Absolutely. have them talk to the same presenter. Absolutely. I don't know that I necessarily agree with that. Je- I mean, I granted testing is important, but how much extra code do you want to write just to be able to test? Well, there's a battle either way. I'm not, I'm thinking about other implementations that that might offer more, even more value to this. It's not just that I want more, you know, web versus Windows UI. I'm just thinking about in, as soon as you think in terms of, wow, that makes it very easy for me to put a web services UI in front of it, right. or totally different ways of using that business logic. That this model becomes, or this pattern becomes very compelling. So, are you ready for the big news? Telerik is taking the wraps off four new product updates. RAD controls for ASP.NET, RAD controls for WinForms, the first official version of the Telerik reporting tool, and a brand new suite codenamed RAD controls Prometheus. And you guys think I don't sleep. Telerik's tools have always been great, but I think this time they've outdone themselves. Well, here are the details. Prometheus is built on top of Microsoft ASP.NET Ajax, and it'll become the successor of RAD controls for ASP.NET. Just as ASP.NET Ajax will be the future of ASP.NET, RAD controls Prometheus represents the future direction of all new Telerik development tools. This new suite of controls will also pave the way for seamless integration with Microsoft Silverlight, formerly WPFE. The WinForm suite aims for the stars with powerful new grid, chart, and tree view controls. For me, it seems like a major player on the WinForms market. Another intriguing addition to Telerik's portfolio this spring is Telerik Reporting. The product introduces a new level of development experience, which Telerik collectively calls easeability, a naturally intuitive mouse-only approach to generating Windows, Web, and PDF reports. And if that's not enough, go to www.telerik.com to check out what's new with Telerik's renowned RAD controls for ASP.NET. Ultimately, I think when you're developing an application, the application is going to end up doing a lot of the same thing, probably more than what most people realize. And instead of duplicating those functionalities over and over again, which a lot of people don't even realize they're doing, you know, if you go to a question uh, to display it, if you go to the database to display a question on the screen, that may be different than what somebody else thinks is um, the same code for fetching a question so that it can be displayed on an edit screen. Yeah. Um, I mean, you're still having to go to the database to fetch that question. And so the goal with this design pattern is to only write that code once and then use it everywhere you need to use it, which would include your unit tests, but then naturally would include those multiple places in the software. It's really, it's really, Scott, it's one step away from what I always do anyway, which is build components as the layer that the interface, user interface talks to. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I never have, well, no, I can't say never. Sometimes I've got code in a, you know, in a VB file that's hanging off of a, you know, a code behind or whatever. But usually if I'm writing a real website that I'm going to, come back to and it has reuse value and all of that it's there's going to be a component here's the the little bit of a differentiation you're using a contract and so let's say you write a business layer and a method in that business layer that says get question 
And the get question just takes an integer. So the whole signature is you're going to return a question object and you say get question integer one. You can then go to your unit test, use that signature. You can go to your website and use that signature. But now what you're doing is you're locked in to that signature. Where instead, if you would have just done one more tiny, tiny bit of abstraction and you created a .NET interface that says, hey, I'm going to return a question and you need to be able to give me uh, an integer. So the, the, the setup like that, if somebody can visualize this code in their head, would be um, question, my question, set. So you need to have a setter on the interface for the question. You're giving it back. And integer, question ID, get means you need to get that. So now, instead of being locked into that signature in the unit test and your website, which you can't change in the future without breaking code, now you're locked into an interface, and you can pass that interface across boundaries um, without having had any change in your unit test or your uh, website. Sure. The presenter can take that interface and do whatever it wants with. I mean... Um, sure. So it's just one more tiny bit of abstraction so that your contract is not the method signature. Instead, it's the interface. And even if you have the interface, though, I mean, if you have to add a parameter to a method, you have to add a parameter. I mean, and it has to, if you have to, if you're taking a new parameter from the user interface, you're changing this, you know, you're changing the interface. Well, there's, there's there's an inheritance model of interfaces. So you can say, uh, interface is one, interface is two, interface is three. So you can make those kind of changes for forward compatibility without breaking everything that happened in the back. Right. Well, we also have optional parameters, right, back. on in methods to do the same thing. Absolutely. All right. So now I'm trying to cause more trouble here. I'm <laughs> thinking of other ways to use this pattern. I want to switch out the model with an existing presenter. And I'm really thinking in terms of I'm now, by using this pattern, I've encapsulated work so that I can take a guy who's talented on the data end and say, all right, switch out the model and work with the existing interfaces that are in a presenter. I'm trying to figure out what's wrong with that idea. Richard, you're saying switch out the business objects. Yeah. Yeah. So your your company gets bought out by another company. All of a sudden, your requirements change on the back end. You're not going to change the UI on your website, right? But at, but at the, in that even in that scenario, I'm not sure that you would be changing out the business objects. What you would probably be changing out is the population of the data in those business objects. Right. So that's where that's where Richard's saying your model would change. Mm-hmm. Either now it goes to a web service, now it goes to Oracle. It used to go to SQL. Yeah. And so having that that proper encapsulation is going to make it easy for you to go back to the presenter and make one change. Now the reality is. Carl, your situation where you abstract everything to a, a business layer, there's no win there between this design pattern and your business layer because you still have a single point of, of code where you're populating those objects. So you go there and make a change and you don't have to, to change anything in your unit test mm. or your or your web service. So that that's not that much of a win. The, the MVP design pattern is really built around getting, at least, at least the way I teach and the way that I use it, the MVP design pattern is really based on getting code out of the code behind of a web form or a Windows form yeah. and into a presenter. And then underneath the presenter is all of your server-side validation and your model and everything else that you need to work within your system. All of that stuff should be underneath the presenter and nowhere near 
the user interface. I get it. Um, so as a general rule, one thing that, that the listeners need to know is if your user interface can in any way, shape, or form directly touch the model, which is your database layer in this example, you have something wrong. You need to go back and refactor that because you don't want to open yourself up to security risks um, in having a direct connection between your, your user interface and your model. I'm not saying by doing that you've eliminated all security, but it's a great step in the right direction because you're now enforcing the only way that you can get data in and out of the database is through a central set of signatures, which is at your business layer, and in my example, is that it's in my presenter, and then I'm passing data to and from the user interface from that central layer. So under no circumstances should you ever have a direct connection to your database from your user uh, user interface. And I think most people would agree with that. And it does open up opportunities for how you would secure this because you've got that sequence of relationships. You've got points where you can say who is the user. Right. And getting into the implementation side of this, there's an awful lot of this code already written. I mean, the interesting thing about patterns is it's a way of thinking about utilizing resources. And I'm specifically jumping down to stuff like and Hibernate, Castle Windsor, yeah. Uh, mocking tools, they all plug into this pattern. Absolutely. Uh, what's your favorite set when you're implementing this? Do you, are you writing it all yourself? No, no, no. I, I'm a huge fan of, you know, there are much smarter people in the community building much greater tools than anything I could ever come up with. So I'm, I'm a huge fan of learning from what the really smart guys do and just using that. Right. Um, we're using the, in my KB, we're using the Castle Windsor project for, uh, the inversion of control. Kind of gets away from the model view presenter design pattern, but the idea there is you're extracting the, uh, functionality from the usage. Um, and probably the best example I have with that is our search scenario. Uh, so when you when you buy MyKB, one of the things that you can upgrade to for some of our um, really large clients is an enterprise search, which is built on top of the Lucene search index. And our core product, when it does a search, it doesn't know what the search engine is. So the base MyKB product uses SQL Server, and we build out a dictionary, kind of like the same thing we're doing under the Easy Search product. Right. Um, so the core product just gets a component that's a search component and it says, Hey, I know how to search. And so you say components.search and then you pass in some search predicates, which are the words supplied by the end user. And then the, the search component goes through Castle Windsor and it says, what search component does this customer have? And if it's the SQL server implementation, it goes off to SQL server, brings back data. Or the Lucene implementation goes to Lucene and brings back data, and then that search component returns it to the uh, to the user interface. So the beauty in that is you don't have uh, two sets of code for the whole pipeline. You have kind of like a, if you can picture a Y. The application is at the bottom of the Y that says, "Hey, I want to I want to search. I want to search for Scott Kate. Show me all the articles that Scott Kate was written." Either as the author, either as the author, or as noted inside the article. So you go up the bottom of that Y, and there's a decision tree that says, what search should I use? 
And the Castle Windsor project using the inversion of control makes it very simple to say, uh, this customer is using one search product, this customer is using another, or even in the future, if we decide to use a third search product, we don't have to touch any of the code inside MyKB. We just have to write a new search implementation, go to Castle Windsor and say, hey, here's a third search option. And then inside of our uh, MyKB customer configuration, we say, this customer now uses that new third search option. And without changing any code, there's no recompile. There's no anything that's done in the core MyKB product. It just would magically start using that new third search option. You know, we're talking about a lot of layers of abstraction, whether we're talking about MVP and its breakouts, uh, how Castle Windsor does the separation through uh, dependency inversion, control inversion. Um, at some point, this gets costly. Well, so so here's the thing, and, and it's a very valid argument because there is a layer of abstraction, and in many cases, there's layers upon layers of abstraction. And... Um, to the to the one or two year developer or to somebody on a really small project, they might think that that is too costly, which means that basically is a decision that says that takes too much time and I'm not getting enough benefit from it. Right. That's right. what that's what too costly means. You know, if you're just throwing together a, a quick website for a sample that's writing database services or maybe you're showing office store procedure, you don't have to have all those layers of abstraction, but uh, anytime you make a decision, you want to try to, particularly in a commercial application, you want to make it so that you don't have to recompile your base code in order to implement that new decision. Um, and, you know, th- there's a reality also, and that's probably more along the lines of what your question is, like, when should I actually do all of this stuff? I would, why would I implement uh, Castle Windsor when I only have one search engine? And, I'm, well, and nobody's talking to me about more search engines. Well, you know, the, the, you really can make a case for adding layers of indirection. I mean, it's not just about what you want to do today, but it's what is possible in the future. And if you don't have those layers in there, it gets really uh, painful in terms of not only in terms of cost, but in terms of the time it takes right. to, to, to wedge your way in between uh, two, two layers. So if we go away from the search engine, I mean, what else should you abstract? Should you abstract the database layer so that you can go in the future against a web service or an Oracle or an Access or an XML or a SQL Server database? I mean, everyone has to know what their business decisions are. And this gets back to one of your questions you asked a little while ago. Fortunately, there are products on the market that make it so simple to do this layer of abstraction that it's easy to do whether you're going to need it or not. So I'm not a fan of adding functionality for the sake of someday in the future we may need that. I don't want to create any extra work at all. But because products like Castle make it very simple to abstract certain layers of your application, it's very easy to make a decision to say, you know what, today we only have one of these or two of these items, but in the future we may have more so let's go ahead and abstract it out, and it doesn't cause any other any more overhead in the application. You know, once it compiles down and everything everything starts up in the application, it's all running smoothly. But now we've we've basically built a socket that we can add code to later right. if we want to. And so, if I'm getting this right, Scott, 
You're saying it's very easy for us to slip Castle in now, but have it do nothing. Absolutely. And so that it's a hook, as opposed to don't put anything in, talk directly to the search engine, and then try and retrofit in a mechanism. Well, maybe, and maybe try to do it, right? You you don't know if you're going to, but you know that if you have to, it's going to hurt. Right. If you don't have those layers. I just wonder how much .NET facilitates, just by its mere existence that we're working in that environment, slipping stuff like Castle in later. Well, it's not so much .NET or Castle. It's if you. It all boils down to this: Do you write your Do you write your code by contract? And if you are developing by contract, then that means it's very easy for you to substitute that contract later. If you are not developing by contract, then you have no contract to substitute. Contract meaning interfaces. Yeah, is the word we're walking around here dependency? Absolutely. I mean, that's really what we're trying to get to here is the reason you put these layers in is to separate dependencies so you know you can safely insert additional functionality between those layers. I wish I could have said that myself. That was perfect. (laughs) (laughs) And, And if we go back to the model view presenter design pattern, you're separating the dependency of the code you're writing in the code behind out to a presenter. So there's a level of separation there. Um, when I'm talking about the search engines in MyKB, we're separating out the dependency of one search engine to another, and we're doing that at a decision tree. We happen to be using Castle IOC for that. Um, but there's another instance, like MyKB.com uses ASP.NET Cache. There's only one caching option that we have right now, but that caching goes through IOC as a component so that in the future, if we need to split that cache off or use a disk-based cache or a SQL server-based cache, we have the option to do that, even though today we're not. And it's not so much that it's more code or less code. It's it's almost a fear element. I don't know what's going to happen here if I modify this code. But if I've clearly separated out the dependencies, then I do know I can step in here safely. Richard, it's not fear. It's just being prepared. I think it's more experience because we've all been burned where, well, I mean, when we wrote MyKB the first time, we only had one search engine and everything was hard-coded in. And then we had a customer with like 380,000 articles need to do a search and their searches were taking 20, 25 seconds. And so we wanted to write a new search engine for them or use a a better search um, mechanism and in order to do that, we had to rip out a lot of plumbing and, and redo a bunch of stuff. And um, fortunately, that was between major versions for us. So we were able to implement this inversion of control mechanism from Castle. And we used some of their, uh, their other uh, code options as well. But particularly with the IOC, we were able to implement that. And so it was good timing for us. But had we not had a major new version that was coming out, um, you know, it, it would have been next to impossible slash we're going to have to write you a custom version of the software in order to implement that feature. Right. And I could see that in, in that time, one or more of you sat down and put the whole chunk of search engine code in your head so that you, you, you then learned all the dependencies within that code enough to know this is what we'll have to change to support more. Well, not change, not change. But move. Right. We, we're not changing anything. We're just moving it out to one layer of abstraction so that we can, because we, we already have the functionality. That works good. 
We just want to write it again, implemented differently. So we want to extract what we already have down one layer through an abstraction and then write another implementation of that same abstraction. Right. And the smaller the cans we can make, the easier it is to do that sort of thing. Absolutely. That's that's perfect. So what did you say um, makes it really easy to do these layers of abstraction? There's a product you mentioned. Um, so Castle Windsor is the inversion of control option that uh, that we're using to create those components. And I, I should also define easy. Um, Castle Windsor is its not something that you'll just be able to pick up and start running with the first day you look at it. Uh, it would be really great if someone on your team has history with it, then you can just have them teach it to you, which we were fortunate enough to do. Um, but when I say easy, um, there, there is definitely a learning curve with, uh, with the, the product or with any IOC product. Um, so IOC is the acronym commonly used for inversion of control. Okay. And Castle Windsor is a, is a product that you can buy. What, what does it cost and how do you, Castle Windsor how do you is, use it? Uh, op- Castle Windsor is open source. Oh, I see. And one of the things that they do is the IOC uh, mechanism. Oh, I see IOC. <laughs> it's a, and Castle Windsor is at castleproject.org. And it's on my list of, I'd like to do a show just on that by itself. Yeah, I, just I would haven't say, gotten there yet. I would say that'd that be would a good be idea. Phenomenal. Well, cause there's all, it's, you, you talk about inversion of control or, uh, there's dependency inversion. Then you also get in the whole angle of dependency injection. I mean, there's a lot of things here about the, and uh, about aspect oriented programming that are coming to .NET finally. And I think, uh, Castle Windsor offers a very significant manifestation of that. So I, I'm, I'm about ready now to, to, to get this topic dealt with and, and really tear into it. But I'm, and I'm glad I didn't know we were going to get here today. I'm pleased, I'm pleased that we did that, you know, we're talking to someone who's taken Castle Windsor and actually made their product better because of it. Absolutely. That's fascinating. Yep. And, and I think that, uh, for your listeners, they will absolutely become a better developer and be a better person in the .NET community if they are looking at uh, the inversion of control and slash unit testing and dependency injection, all these little types of, of um, uh, abstractions are not just there because they're fun to do. They're there because they truly make a better product. And by making that better product, you are becoming a better developer. And everybody loves a better developer. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I appreciate your angle, Scott, on this. If you are building a product like uh, my KB that's lasting over lifetimes, multiple pro, uh, multiple versions, multiple customers yeah. with different demands, and having to deal with stuff like, oh, this guy needs a different search engine. Right, right. You're not using these technologies because it's fun. You've got to make a living, and the only way to make a living is put up with what the customer needs, and you're trying to find painless ways to do that. The man knows his stuff. <laughs> <laughs> We would have to uh, basically have add-on SKUs for every little thing that changed for each customer instead of just building out components that the customer wants. So the search engine is uh, a, a perfect option. And literally, if you call and say, hey, I want to upgrade to Enterprise Search, you know, we buy it, we give you a license, and the license file says, the license file for our product actually dictates which search gets used. So only one core app, That's just right. it's a question of what gets turned on and what isn't. That's right. 
That's awesome. Always a good idea. Scott, uh, is there any last minute hi mom or announcements or anything or, or, uh, shout outs you want to do before we hang up? I'd like to, um, uh, talk a little bit more about the Shoop project. Okay. Um, just making that, um, available to your listeners. We're really interested in some, uh, uh, feedback, particularly with the data sharing. So we've got the website pretty nailed down, um, where end user can come up and say, Hey, I want to start keeping track of a recipe or, there's a cool concept that we have of sharing an application. So let's say that you guys already write an address book and I say, hey, that's cool. I'm in your address book. I want one of those. If you make it available, I can copy that application, which gives me all of the schema um, and only the lookup tables that you designate. Like if you've already done states and zip codes and area codes, you can designate that as a lookup table. And then when I copy the application, I'll get my own address book Obviously, I'll have to populate it with my own data, yeah. but the lookup tables came came across as well. Um, so there's a we're trying to create a really cool uh, sharing mechanism for the uh, for the application, and then your your listeners are obviously developers, so if they could um, look at the web services that are created, that would be phenomenal. Awesome. Well, you heard it here. It's shoop s h o o p e dot com. That's correct. What is a shoop? <laughs> so the background on the name is actually, um, it doesn't mean anything. Um, in high school, uh, one of our friends, you know, we ran around with about 10 people, and um, one day they just started calling me shoop. And so actually it's been a nickname of mine for the last uh, 15 years or so. So my close friends and family call me shoop and like, hey, shoop, how's it going? And so it's just kind of been a nickname. And the reason I have the domain is because back in the late 90s when domains came around, I'm like, oh, I'll get scottkate.com and I'll also get shoop.com. Awesome. And I've just, I've just had it sitting on the shelf for 15 years. You've been paying for that thing for 15 years <laughs> and not doing anything with it. <laughs> and so now Brilliant. we have something that, um, that we can do with it. So I got a shoop story for you because I heard this first in the, in the uh, context of a game that you play. It's one of these games that you play sitting around in a circle Indian style called silent football. Have you heard of silent football? No. It, no. It starts with a customary... Is it a drinking game? No. No, it's not. <laughs> no. It starts with... Uh, you play with kids. Uh, it starts with customary tip of the hat and customary shoop, and then you make a uh, gesture like you're taking a drink, but you're not, of course, but it's customary shoop. And then, uh, basically, you, you use gestures to pass around an invisible football and you and there are rules about gestures that you like can and can't raids. do yeah and uh, uh it's pretty fun it's a lot of fun so in researching the name because I, I didn't want to make a product that had a name that you know was some derogatory term in some other country or something and um right i, I didn't know how to do that but with amazon they have a service called mechanical turk um right. maybe something you guys have have heard about but it's basically you you uh, you put out jobs and you pay for them. So I said I'll give everyone a nickel if they tell me what they think of when they read the term shoop, s h o o p e. And I put out 500 hits. A hit is what they call the job. So I put out 500 jobs and I paid a nickel each. And the same day, all 500 jobs were filled. And the huh. most popular answer was the sound a basketball makes when it hits the net. Uh, like swish. Right. 
I've never heard of this uh, Amazon service, artificial artificial intelligence. Yeah, uh, it's a it's basically using the internet. There are people out there that are just waiting around to do jobs, and you can qualify your jobs to say, I only want PhDs, or I only want C sharp developers, or I only want people who speak Spanish. You know, whatever your qualification is, to be able to do this job and. It's really a phenomenal service. That's a whole nother show for you guys. So Yeah, no kidding. I'm making notes on this one. <laughs> what an interesting idea. Hey, so um, one last thing. I, I would like to say thank you to uh, my team and everybody for the last two years that's worked on the shoot project, in particular to the team manager. His name is Lauren Twaits. He's uh, also an MVP, and he's blogging, and uh, he's out there. So uh, there you go, Lauren. All these guys. Lauren, you rock. <laughs> <laughs> All these guys, especially Lauren, have really put in a lot of time. So, um, big, big, big thank you. It, it's got to. It, is, is there anything better than shipping software? I mean, real for for us at making a living, you know, the work that we do, the feeling you get when you actually cast a Ship version. It. It's Here it phenomenal. Is. Yeah, it's yeah, phenomenal. I don't love it. So we're cheating just a little bit because we don't have everything done. So I'm telling thank you to Lauren. So he'll work for the next 44, 48 hours to get it done by the time the show airs. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Scott. Thanks a lot for coming on the show and telling us all about what you're up to these days. Thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. It was a great talk. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Plop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter van by the FCC. Yes, I 